0: on this episode of the LP, Literature in Practice.
1: Look, I want you to be ahead of everyone else in your school or district in figuring out this technology because in a few years, everyone's gonna be looking for the person who understands what the hell these things are.
0: We are officially in the era where excitement, fear, promise, and paranoia about the capabilities of artificial intelligence are now a part of everyday conversation in our society from the voice-activated tools on our phones to art generators, picture filters, grammar editors, and the latest innovations with ChatGPT. We are steadily integrating AI into essential elements of our lives. What does this mean for how we teach, learn, and do school? Will the inequities that existed in analog instruction continue, improve, or worsen as digital technologies for teaching and learning evolve? Before I read Varun Aurora's well-timed book, Artificial Intelligence in Schools, a guide for teachers, administrators, and technology leaders, I was deeply cynical about any positive potential AI use could have on how we teach kids in school. Through his book and our conversations, however, I became more cautious than cynical as he invited me and others to explore opportunities to guide AI development in a manner that enhances teacher ownership of equitable instruction instead of replacing or negating it. I offer you the same invitation he gave to me. This is the LP. Our guest for this podcast, is none other than the author of Artificial Intelligence in Schools, a guide for teachers, administrators, and technology leaders. His name is Varun Arora. Um, He's also the CEO of Open Curriculum, an education technology company that uses expert systems, natural language processing technologies, and knowledge on effective instructional practices to help K through 12 teachers design high quality curriculum and instruction using research and evidence from classrooms around the world. Live from Oman is Brother Varun. How you doing, sir?
1: I'm excellent. I'm super excited. I've been a fan of everything Unbounded. I've been a fan of your podcast. So this is a delight to be here. Thank you.
0: No, no, thank you. So before we get into your book, we got to know a bit about Mr. Aurora. What was your favorite text as a kid? And then what is your favorite text as an adult?
1: So as a kid, we grew up in a really bad reading environment. We had a lot of texts that were selected by the education system and, and the designers of our curriculum that had absolutely no relevance to the world we were in. We were reading British authors and Irish poets who were talking about the joys of spring and the horrors of fall or, or, or the, the, the horrors of winter. And, and for us, we were living in Oman, growing up in Oman. It was just a monoclimate of just hot, 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 and hot. Mm.
0: So it was summer all year
1: long. So it was really hard to relate to those texts. There was like a very early understanding of the fact that if you don't take concerted effort to make decks available in libraries and within uh, language instruction and literature instruction that are uh, relevant, you're going to lose kids. But fortunately, it didn't mean that I might, you know, uh, going ahead, I, I was, I was disengaged entirely um, I think in in college I was or, or early high school I was very excited about Dan Browns stuff because it was a very beautiful way to understand religion without reading dense religious texts. Mm. Uh, growing up in the Middle East as a non-muslim uh, with friends who were of all faiths, I was really excited about understanding you know where people came from, but I wanted a story around it. so Dan Brown really helped but Lately, I've been drawn to texts that help me understand the world better, understand progress, development, where we're moving as a species. So I think the last book I read, which is a book called Enlightenment Now by this person called Steven Pinker, has just moved me in mm-hmm. profound ways. It was it was on Bill Gates' best. It's probably, he, he, I think he said it was one of the best books he ever read in his life. And sure enough, you know, I, I just was drawn to it through the entire 600 pages, couldn't couldn't leave it, couldn't put it down. So that's my favorite text right
0: now. Wow. Wow. All three of those experiences you just identified helped me understand why you wrote the book that you wrote and how you wrote it, too. First question I want to ask you is just if you could take a moment to describe the environment your book is designed to address.
1: So we have this extremely, I want to say, odd and um, unseen, untested waters that we've that we've arrived in and it's I was I was hoping I, I can think of some analogies or some precedents and I, I really couldn't and the situation that we've found ourselves in is that there's an extreme stress on teaching as a profession and that's pre-COVID I'm not even talking about the absurdity of the number of variables that confound how we think about what a teacher's role is in the classroom, or how we think about equity in the classroom, how we think about what students ought to be learning, and we're seeing in this in this time of extreme stress. Whenever there's a stress in any professional environment or industry, there is a there is a desire to move towards um, new processes, new methodologies. It is just what naturally happens in the in the structure of organizations and human progress, and so. We're seeing schools and um, may, make a lot of like new investments in educational technologies, in, in in school management technologies. This is impacting like you know student learning depth. This is impacting enrollment. This is impacting student participation, engagement. Just the absolute sheer number of tools we've been introducing in the past two or three years, when there's been like a sudden shift in in move to uh, learning at home without a lot of thought. And mm-hmm. so one of the interesting things about this is. These are all tools and technologies that are fundamental to the role of schools and teachers. This is what a student learns, how they learn, how they experience instruction in a virtual environment, how they get assessed. This is all core to what a school does. It should be ideally aligned to the district's philosophy. This should be ideally aligned to what's going on in the classroom, to what the experience of the student is. So the larger setup here is that None of this is ancillary or extraneous to what schools do. Mm-hmm. Yet, within this context, the number of principals, the number of department heads, the number of teachers, the number of coaches, and I'm not talking about faculty in universities, I'm talking about people who are doing that in the classrooms on a daily basis. The people who have built an understanding of these things that we call a core teacher's focus, a core school's focus, who understand the technologies that are coming into the classroom is almost negligible. And again, I said, mm-hmm. I was trying to find a presence in the past. and I was like, there is, there is literally none because in every change in process or, or technology, there's been a desire to understand what's next. And we're at a crossroads where schools are barely functioning, surviving. And, and so there's very few people who truly understand what's being used. Mm-hmm. And my fear is that we slowly and unawaringly make these things other people's business. We say, this is what companies do, or this is what tech innovators do. And mm-hmm. they don't understand and value what we value. They don't understand our kids. They don't understand the physical spaces we are in. And so it's funny because on one hand, there's a lot of these things, but there's an like absence of complete absence of interest in understanding it from a school side, from an educator side. And this is not like other technology. When, when we talk about artificial intelligence in particular, it's not like projectors. It's not like laptops, which we could right. just figure out. My real fear is that we end up in this long period of darkness. And after 20 years, we say, oh, my gosh, we're in a crisis because for 20 years, we've been pulling in these pieces of technology And as teachers and as principals, we have no idea how they work and what they do and what they did to our kids. So instead of reflecting 20 years later and saying we screwed up, I think we should be a whole lot more proactive. And so we're just like setting up an equity crisis in the making because edtech fundamentally amplifies inequity and schools who will build the jobs and the resources and the skills to figure out what these skills are, um, what these tools are, they will move at a much faster pace and leave behind the schools that are already struggling today. So we're mm-hmm. we're literally at the cusp of a larger equity crisis that's going to get created if we don't do something about this. So this is generally the environment as I see it, and so I fear it, and I'm a little more alarmist than most people. But I think that I I see something that is inevitable that we're going to complain about it. It's going to be a crisis at some point.
0: You know, like, you you identify, you self-identified as an alarmist, but sometimes uh, if you know what's coming around the corner because you're already around the corner, it's hard to say that, you know, somebody's an alarmist because you know what's missing, you know what's coming, um, and and you want folks uh, to know. What are some key concepts or terms that routinely pop up in this text as it explores what's going on in this environment regarding your argument for artificial intelligence being an aid to the school environment like what are some key words and terms that are present through your book
1: cool because the book is fundamentally you know technical in nature it is it is meant to make teachers a little uncomfortable so i would say that the, the most important term or phrase throughout the book is this idea of Pattern recognition. And I think Mm -hmm. if there is a fundamental new concept that the book coins, which is I've never come across it in in literature, is that great teachers are great pattern recognizers. Teachers early in their career are not so great at pattern recognition. So pattern recognition is, is a core idea. I would say another core idea is this idea of deeper learning. Which is different from deep learning, which is fundamental to a lot of AI innovation. But this idea of very deep engagement, deep curiosity—we've been talking about these ideas for a very really long time. But I think that's a phrase that—that's a—that's a, that's a that, that's two words that sums up the idea of you know extremely deep interest from a student's part uh, very well. And the third is data. It's it's fundamental to absolutely everything we talk about in AI. So I would say those are the three kind of concepts or ideas.
0: For sure. Thank you for the clarity on uh, deep learning and deeper learning, because I think in my mind, even after reading your book, I I still keep those interchangeable in in, in my brain. But I wanted to talk a little bit about how you communicate some of these things that we've been uh, hinting at as your uh, main topics and main points. What would you say your communication style is in the book, and how does it show up in the book? How do you think it can potentially impact the reception of the message you offer?
1: Yeah, As you may have realized very quickly in the book, I'm very self-deprecating because I want to put the reader at ease and and not look like the sage on the stage from the very beginning. I'm like, look, we're, we're figuring this out together. You know, you think of those Hollywood movies in which there are, Uh, you know, aliens going to show up on the earth and somebody is like mentally programmed to have communicated with them like more easily than others or like knows what's going to happen in the future. It's exactly that way. I was just fortunate to fall in this intersection of knowing the very best of what's going on in artificial intelligence and then pushing myself in curriculum and instructional improvement practices and processes. And I was like, hey, I think I I get something that I want to share or there's a perspective here that no one's sharing. So my goal in that process, and again, I've not figured it out, and I, I don't know if anyone has, was try to have a conversation. I try to not act like the guy who knows it all, and I try to, you know, whenever I present something to an audience, like lately, even when I talk about the book, I've been moving away from the presentation format, from the lecture format. I've been insisting every talk mm-hmm. I give is, can can I sit with the participants? Can I make it a Socratic seminar? So that's my general go-to, because I realized uh, one of the best practices was, you know, when we, when we had oral communication traditions where uh, story building was really important because I cannot uh, help you understand the importance of what the moment we are in and the challenges we'll face if I present it on two slides out of a hundred slides. I have to set it up like a story, like the arc of a story and present unresolved tensions first help you see uh, the challenge, like in a a Sherlock Holmes uh, show where you're showing like the death scene as the first thing. You're not, you're not waiting to put it in the end. Right. And you're saying, this is exactly what happened. Hey, audience member, we're going to give you all the information up front, but then slowly and steadily, we're going to try to break down what led to this so you don't think that there is something you don't know but it like unravels as a mystery in your own head as as more pieces of the puzzle come you know come out uh and this is very much true of the things i'm describing which is you know these complex formulae these black box these systems they work magically today so we've got to appreciate the the filters on our phones and the magical algorithms of facebook's relevance because we get to use it And only when you know that that's happening, you know, the power of what's possible. And then we break down what it takes to get there. So again, I try to have a conversation in the whole book and I try to be funny, really funny. I think I don't do that such a good job. So I think I'll have to just go do some stand up, get better. and
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, listen, when, when, when I read the book, especially with my own bias lens and somebody who's just, I am not stem or steam grounded, particularly with, you know, a computer a science. I try to get better. I try to, you know, strive to be a little more balanced, but I'm, there's still a journey for me. So part of my bias in reading things like this, or getting ready to read things like this is being like, okay, this is going to be like voiceless, cold, <laughs> right? Not engaging unless it's something that really draws an interest. And I didn't get that sense at all. It's very personal. It's, it's, it's very journey-like right, um, while still being hyper-informative the way that a lot of STEM books tend to be, right? Very focused right. on information, but still uh, personal. We, we talked a bit about deeper learning and, and data and pattern recognition, but are, is there other knowledge or even particular things about those concepts that have already been mentioned that folks may need or want to dive into before they read?
1: One of my objective was to have a low floor for my book. And so I think you may have experienced that I am making no assumptions about what a teacher thinks about what good practices in pedagogy look like. I don't naturally come out dissing lecture-based instruction. I don't naturally assume that people walk in with an appreciation of certain models of classrooms and classroom sizes. And so the only real thing I want people to walk in with is not really certain knowledge, but more certain attitudes. And the attitudes uh, I want them to have is one I want them to possibly reflect on the question of what would make their job better, which Mm -hmm. is different from faster and or easier, specifically better. Because Mm -hmm. when you think about making your job faster or easier, an educator's first goal is to eliminate essential things that they believe are hard. And grading is one of those first things that comes to people's mind, right? How can we eliminate that? When you think about better, you say, well, it's grading is essential. Feedback is essential. You know, formative assessments on a frequent basis is essential. But what would enable it to be better would be a certain amount of supports and resources from within the school. Exit tickets prepared for me great, deep, rigorous curriculum and text-based questions, document-based questions pre-written for me. So what would make it better? And this is a question that I want people to reflect on rather than going out and reading something. The other thing maybe which would be useful is an educator asking themselves, what do I see myself doing for my school, my district, for my students, eventually, consequently, in identifying educational technology for the future, again, something that they can't read about, but I think it is very much a text for personal growth and success. I open with the fact that, look, I want you to be ahead of everyone else in your school or district in figuring out this technology because it's in, in a few years, it's going to be everyone's going to be looking for the person who understands what the hell these things are. So just if they don't see their role at any point in identifying, in researching, in reasoning about these technologies, then it's gonna be slightly weaker for them. And so it's a good question for them to ask.
0: Yeah, no, and, and as a reader, I definitely appreciate it in terms of, honestly, it just, it read like a teacher was writing it because of the accessibility, the scaffolds, the direct review of vocabulary, right? You know, sidebars around resources and concepts. Along with your easygoing storytelling narration, you know, again, all this makes sense in terms of those three particular things you shared in the beginning about your your favorite books now, like Dan Brown, right, and how you grew up reading where you wanted something that was a little more uh, accessible to your identities. I've, I've definitely gathered that much. I want to ask juicier text-dependent questions <laughs> uh, that I came up with and just thought about during my time reading your book, Artificial Intelligence in Schools. How could or how does AI factor in culture, in education, instruction, and should it? Is is that the place for AI to be in?
1: Right. So the ground I want to establish for that is that, okay, there's a lot of people who sound the alarm bells for AI in education. Their entire Bit is that there is, uh, what they try to bring to the fore is that there is possible bias in AI that we need to be aware of, okay? So they're not necessarily talking about culture because I don't think they understand what culture is, but they're saying, look, this is cool, this is great, it's happening, it's all around you, uh, but there is bias that you need to be aware of. At that moment, understanding that, that perspective and seeing these people write about this and trying to explain this to educators like I wonder like to what extent do people think that technologies in general are like culture free? Because if they do, I think that's like it's such a big problem. It's like we've not done the zero thing to, to speak like a computer scientist in some way, we've not done the first thing or the zero thing to explain to people what making these technologies is. I, I think Every piece of technology, every physical piece of technology, every software, everything we interact with on a daily basis on our phones and our computers, like embodies and carries culture because every line of code, every user interface is like a decision. It's a choice. And and you may say, well, tools like Facebook and Instagram are made by very culturally rich and diverse teams in a large organization, but irrespective, they reflect the culture of those three, like each feature, how many designers do you think are sitting on it? And how many engineers do you think are sitting on it? Like it's two or three in each of those cases, how culturally diverse can we get those features to be? So I, my first thing is, okay, guys, just, if if we, if we have to establish the most basic, conversation starter in this is we have to agree universally that every piece of technology has culture embedded and that culture reflects the culture of the maker. It's still very hard for a creator to embody another person's culture. I think we understand that as ed- educators the challenges a curriculum writer has knowing their demographic the challenge a teacher has who lives sometimes in the same neighborhoods as the kids who show up in the classroom sometimes and often not struggling to understand the culture right so this is this is the first problem so if we if we if we collectively agree upon this this idea of benchmarks which is the fact that we have collective signs of progress every advancement made in ai has a metric has a has a like a score you know we're all aspiring towards improving the score so the more universal a system becomes the more culturally average it becomes mm-hmm. because you are trying to figure out what the midpoint or median of success across all these countries is and now if you put a educator lens on you say we have like the greatest example of Averages and that's called bad curriculum made by publishers. Bad generic curriculum meets no one anywhere. The more number of teachers and school district leaders who are like embedded in the process of the design uh, and construction of these technologies, that the better place will be in the future. And and I, I couldn't be more uh, confident and excited about this. But but nobody's talking about this, and that that makes me really
0: worried. Yeah. No, for sure. I, I, I agree. Like Books like yours that bring the attention on AI in general and bring the attention on the need for education so that way things can be more equitable and more accessible to everybody the way that you've been describing is important um, for sure. With that being said, I have to ask my final question to you, which I feel like you've answered in pieces uh, over the course of the interview, which was my pattern recognition skills. (laughs) Um, How does your book help support folks who want to make instruction more grade level, engaging, affirming, and or meaningful for students?
1: Okay. Grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful for students. Those are a lot of ideas independently that can be unpacked, but I think, um, Since it is a book that, you know, it's like, I'm setting up the reader for understanding a complex world, which they will participate in for, for a decade or two decades to come. There's no easy solutions right in front of our eyes. So the text doesn't, if you're looking for instant gratification, this is definitely not the text for you. So it doesn't do it in direct ways. But in indirect ways, it gives a hopeful, innovative educator so many tools and techniques to to think about how they will co-participate, co-engage with computers to increase the relevance of texts, to be able to identify and summarize primary sources, rather than being limited to the publisher's choices of texts, the most relevant and rigorous curriculum. There is still a need and desire for a teacher to reflect on the subculture within their school, within their community. The very fundamentals of what we know about schooling and philosophy of classrooms have just such a deep emphasis on the need for teachers and school leaders to be both opinionated and reflect what's happening in their communities and what's happening in the student lives in the classroom. So there is a need for teachers to co-work with computers, an opportunity for teachers to co-work with computers in the future to identify those relevant pieces of knowledge and and, and texts, to identify different vocabulary, to increase the depth of learning by kind of figuring out what are the pathways through which students have to go to have that very deep experience with the idea of trigonometric functions, to have very deep interactions with language. And this needs to happen on a much more decentralized basis than we see it today. And so one, one like very simple example of what this might look like in the future is we we constantly talk about this idea that we have to increase the relevance of text for students and relevance as a basis for engagement. You can't make something, you can't imagine making something really engaging for students if it's not tied to their lives, right? So what is like a golden example of relevance in our lives? We like outside of schools, we, we think of them like, uh, Amazon and Netflix, and you know how easily they're able to understand us, and how easily they're able to understand what people like us bought. For a educator who is at the cutting edge of technology, or wants to be at the cutting edge of technology and partner with people who build technology, for them, that idea that there is a concept called collaborative filtering under this umbrella called recommendation systems that they can actually piece together with somebody and use in their classroom for making absolutely anything relevant, whether it's videos they wanna watch in the classroom, texts they choose, activities they do. I described this like very specific um, example of a teacher in 2030 called Mrs. Buku. In her world, she will come to a classroom, to a system that you know, constantly monitors video and student work And she just clicks on the the button that says recommend class activities for today. And so Mm -hmm. we go from a point where we're overloading teachers with this complicated decision logic of what pedagogy is relevant at what points to the point where computer systems do all that dirty work and they are responsible for the hard work of listening and interpreting and being there for students. And I think it it would make the job a lot more easier. So I believe that such a technology can easily exist. I am choosing to keep like my opinions on engagement and like affirmation to myself because I want mm-hmm. schools and teachers to determine and content areas experts to determine how to piece together these small, you know, tools to, to ask for themselves to figure out what, what does engagement look like? What does making instruction grade level, more grade level look like? What does affirmation look like? What does meaning look like? I want that to happen. Like I want teachers to have the time, luxury space to think about those questions. They are the most mm. fundamental questions about what matters in the classroom, what matters for our students.
0: Wow, way to make this hard to close.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, too many things. We, we went all over the place. I was all over we the did place. It.
0: No, 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 no. We, we went because like every single question, I feel like you were like, like a computer scientist is very clear and direct to the heart of what's being asked just as a close to tie this up into a nice you know package put a nice bow at the top can you please bless us with by closing with a quote that you feel like summarizes the intentions and central ideas of your uh, text
1: thank you thank you for the opportunity What do we have to do to bring teachers at the center of technological progress to improve teaching and learning? The kind of work that gives them the insight into the student experience and does the heavy lifting of repetitive and laborious tasks. This insight will come not from opaque and shallow learning technologies, which are meant for one size fits all, but through experiments in authentic in-class and out of class observations leading to a more complex modeling of individual learners and their cognitive, sociocultural, metacognitive, and affective development. This insight will allow us to focus on deeper differentiation by taking the whole child into consideration. At some point in the future, AI, among other things, will help us make the socioeconomic circumstances a child is born into matter less and less in the quest to achieve a high-quality education. And that is only imaginable if we take an optimistic view of AI in teaching and learning, because it will support us in shaping its design, application, and research in the years to come.
0: This spin of the LP with Varun Aurora left me with a few things to reflect on. The lag of the public school system plus the fast evolution of AI, makes it hard for educators to find ownership and voice during these advances. But it's important that we fight for it because otherwise more power in our profession is lost. Also, great teachers are great pattern recognizers. So is great AI. How can great teachers use their pattern recognition skills to direct fruitful outcomes from AI's pattern recognition? It's also important to note that AI technology, just like anything else a human creates, like a language or a building or a policy or a practice, reflects culture and bias. This is not talked about enough and can have serious implications on education as AI becomes more prevalent. Some of Varun's points drew me back to what I learned in computer science classes. Random Access Memory, or RAM, represents the amount of data readily accessible in an operating and multitasking computer. AI in the classroom, like a good pre-AI curriculum, is supposed to expand and free up the RAM in a teacher's mind so that recalling and acting on best practices becomes easier to concentrate on. In sum, all these considerations require a decentralization of knowledge, ownership, and training with education-related AI in order to make sure AI serves the purpose of amplifying organic human teaching and learning experiences instead of diluting, polluting, or substituting them. With folks like Varun leading the charge, I look forward to this process. To get more info on this episode's author, the featured text, and how you can apply your newly acquired knowledge in your profession, we got you. Check us out on the LP website, at unbounded.org forward slash LP. You can also check us out on social media at UnboundEDU. This is Brandon White. Thanks for listening to the LP, Literature in Practice, where we take a look at texts and practices that encourages student instruction to become more grade-level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. Peace and progress.